Praise the Lord. Good to have you this morning. If you're visiting, uh, delighted to see you. This morning, I'll give you a, a text to look at in a few moments. Uh, but first of all, it's wonderful to be in the house of the Lord on Easter Sunday. Uh, this is the most important date in the Christian calendar. And if there's any, uh, unless there's absolute <laughs> dire emergencies, we should be in the house of God on Easter Sunday morning at the very least. And thank God that you are here. Two separate events separate Christianity from all other religions. And that is the death and the resurrection of its founder, the Lord Jesus Christ. Christianity is the only religion that is based upon the resurrection of its founder. No other religion has that unique distinction. And so the empty cross and the empty tomb are the hallmarks of our Christian faith. Without these two events, there would be no Christian church, there would be no Christian Bible, no Christian preachers or missionaries, there'd be no gospel, there'd be no grace, there'd be no new life, no victory over death, hell and the grave, there'd be no sacrifice for sins if it wasn't for the cross. And if it wasn't for the resurrection, there'd be no evidence that God accepted that sacrifice for sins. But thank God for those two events. They are inseparable. They go hand in glove. They were, in fact, the foundation of all apostolic preaching in the early church. And this is why Paul said to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 2.2, he said, I want to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Again to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain, and you are still in your sins. And so this was the basis. This was right at the very heart of all apostolic preaching in the New Testament. And so after 2,000 years, the empty cross and the empty tomb are still potent reminders of the death and the resurrection of Christ. Of course, it has become sanitized and sentimentalized and romanticized. I wonder if somebody from the first century actually stepped into today. I wonder what they would think if they saw Wilson Archer with a cross on the main street. I wonder what they would think if they looked at our gold and silver crosses around our necks and dangling from our ears. I wonder what they would think if they saw it sculpted in marble and laid out in mosaic tiles and in stained glass windows. I wonder what they would figure why, what would be the fascination they would think of these people with such a cruel wicked instrument of death because it was an instrument of death. Why not have an iron cart, gold, electric chair around her neck or a hangman's noose? Because they too are instruments of death. But actually, we glory in that instrument of death. It's a great sign of the Christian church, is it not? The empty cross. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians, in the very 
first chapter. Listen to what he says, verse 14. I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. Yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so this is something that we glory and that we boast of. And it's a wonderful thing. The resurrection, of course, uh, changed the church, didn't it? And they actually changed from a Saturday Sabbath to the next day in which we call Sunday. And so it changed their whole way of worship. We celebrate Easter, of course, and although Easter has become kind of lost in the eggs and bunny rabbits and all the paraphernalia that goes with that, uh, the Christian Institute uh, just this week uh, published a, a report, and it was about a census that was taken in the UK. And what they discovered was that 80% of all children do not know the reason for Easter. In fact, 25% of them thinks that it's to mark the birthday of the Easter bunny. And more than 25% thinks that it's marking the date when chocolate was invented. That's how little they're being taught Christian truths. It's not staggering in the UK, a so-called Christian country. And so this Easter Sunday, let us focus for a little while on the resurrection. Now, if you were to go on the street and you were to stop 100 people and you were to say to them, what do you think is the most important religious question or spiritual question, whatever way you'd want to term that, probably people would say, uh, does God exist? Is there a God at all? Or they, they might say something like, is there really life after death or is this just all that there is? Is there something beyond this? Or they may say, well, if there is a God, why doesn't he stop all wars, cure all diseases, and have done with all injustice? Those would be fairly stuck questions that people may ask. But probably not one in a hundred would ask the question, did Jesus Christ rise again from the dead? And without the answer to this question, then all other questions is meaningless, actually. Without finding the answer to this question, then we may forget about trying to answer the other questions. In fact, belief in the resurrection is so fundamental that it actually goes to the very heart of our very salvation. The Apostle Paul in Romans 10 and 9 says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
So belief in the resurrection, the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is fundamental to your very soul salvation. Without that belief, you cannot be saved. So it is absolutely vital. Of course, the crucifixion and the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus had a profound effect upon all those who were eyewitnesses to those traumatic events. A few friends and followers of Jesus that was faithful and loyal to him right to the bitter end, they were profoundly affected. Now they were obviously shattered, heartbroken. I mean, when you think about it, their Messiah, the one that they put all of their hopes and dreams in, was dead. Not only that, he was crucified as a criminal publicly. Their dream had turned into a nightmare. Their faith was crushed. Their hope was gone. The only thing that remained was their love for the Master. It's the only thing they had left. And so there was nothing left to do now but to give Jesus a decent burial. I mean, that was the very least they could do for the one who had done so much for them. Now you have to understand that in Roman times, whenever a criminal uh, was executed, particularly by crucifixion, that more often than not, their bodies were left to rot on the cross. Left to the buzzards and the vultures to devour. Or if they were taken down from the cross, oftentimes they would just be dumped and left for the scavengers to feast on. And so it was ugly and brutal and humiliating and undignified. But God had other plans for the body of His Son. And here the Easter story takes a new and a lovely twist. Because enter unexpectedly, stage right, comes two men, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus. And these two play an important part in the Easter story. And that's what I want to share with you this morning. Now these two men, what they did for the body of Christ was beautiful, it was considerate, it was dignified, it was honorable, it was respectful. But it was also prophetic. Because in Isaiah 53 and 9, it said he made his grave with the wicked, but his death with the rich. And so this was a prophetic thing they were doing, although they didn't know that or even understand that. But God had this planned. So here are two men, good and true, honorable and just, seekers of truth and righteousness. But for some time now, we don't know how long, but for some time now they had become secret disciples of the Lord Jesus. Joseph of Arimathea. In Matthew 27, 57, it says that Joseph had become a disciple of Jesus. But in John 19, 38, it says that he became a secret disciple for fear of the Jews. In Luke 23, 50 and 51, it says that Joseph had not consented unto the death and unto their decision and their deed. Whenever the Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was the, the Jewish elders, 
uh, and they ruled all the affairs of the Jews, mainly religious affairs, but often civil affairs too. And whenever they consented together to put Jesus to death and to kill him, it says that Joseph did not consent to their deed. He had been a secret disciple. He had secretly admired and secretly wanted to follow Jesus. Although he wasn't going to lose his job over him at this point. He just hadn't got enough guts and courage to come right out and say it. He was hinting at it. He was doing what he felt he could do without losing his job and his position within the Sanhedrin. But he was just a secret disciple. What about Nicodemus? Isn't it interesting that the three times that Nicodemus came to Jesus, it was always by night. He too was a secret disciple. Wanted to know spiritual things. Felt that Jesus would have the answer. Never man spoke like this man. He was fascinated with this man, this so-called Messiah. Is he the Messiah? Is he not the Messiah? He's certainly a deeply spiritual man. I must seek him out. I have questions to ask, but I don't want anybody else to see me. And there's many people like that today, isn't there? They admire Jesus. Maybe think he's a wonderful man. But they don't want to come right out and say, hey, I want to be a follower of this man. And so they're secret disciples. However, the trouble with secret disciples is they're not much good to the church. Sure they're not. And invariably, they fail Jesus also. Far better to be out and open and to be a real Christian and not hide your light under a bushel, as the Bible says, but to come right out and say what you are and be proud of it. Matthew 10 and 32 and 33, Jesus says, But whoever denies me before men, him I will deny before my Father in heaven. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? Jesus doesn't want secret disciples. He wants men and women who have the courage of their convictions who will stand up and say, I'm a Christian. I'm a believer in Christ. may not be popular today in the Western world. In fact, it's probably become more unpopular than it's ever been. But nevertheless, we've got to take our stand. Proverbs 29, 25 says that the fear of man brings a snare. The fear of man. I wonder what my family will say. I wonder what my boss will say. I wonder what my uni friends will say. I wonder what my workmates will say. The fear of man, it brings a snare. You just got to nail your colors to the mast. I remember the night I got saved. I was working in shift work. I had to go into work on a Sunday evening at 11 o'clock. And I thought, how am I going to say this? Because I knew I was going to have to say it. How am I going to do this? Who am I going to talk to first? How am I going to break this? And one of the, my workmates came over to me, and he came to tell me an off-color joke, because that's the only ones he ever said. And so he came right over to tell me, and I knew what he was going to do, and I just stopped him. I says, hold on a minute. I says, there's something to tell you. I says, I'm saved. I gave my life to Jesus last night. You know what he did? He looked all around, 
So you know, he's, none, nobody was watching or listening. He says, my wife's a Christian too, you know. <laughs> well, I didn't know that. I worked with this man for years. He never said that before. And within five minutes, everybody knew. <laughs> everybody knew. I don't have to tell anybody else after that. The word went around. God has, God has become good living. <laughs> I'll give them six weeks. <laughs> I think they were laying bets on it. Well, that was a long time ago. And God is still good living. <laughs> Following Jesus to this day. Glory to God. And so, they were secret disciples. But at least now, at the last, belatedly, they take courage and they nail their colors to the mast and they take their final opportunity to serve the master. I think they instinctively knew what they should have been doing all along and they didn't. And this is now the only thing left to do. But thank God they did it. Amen. And so they're coming out of their theological, ecclesiastical closets, as it were. And this is their final service, their last opportunity. And they use three things. They use their position, they use their power, and they use their prosperity. So let's look at that for a few moments. They use their position. Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus were not just ordinary five-eighths. These were members of the Sanhedrin. I mean, the Sanhedrin ruled the wrist. If you're in the Sanhedrin, uh, then you'd be highly educated for a start. You'd be a person who would be in the know. I mean, you'd be a pillar of the community. Even the very way that you would dress would mark you of somebody of stature within jury. These were the teachers of the law. These were the people who decided arguments about the law. These were men who would be steeped in theology. These would be the professors of theology, as it were. And yet, amazingly, if you, if you look at John chapter 3, Verse 1, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no man can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, 
Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus answered and said to him, How can these things be? Now listen to Jesus' answer. Jesus answered and said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel? I notice he didn't say, Are you a teacher of Israel? Are you the, the definite article here, Are you the teacher of Israel? This marked Nicodemus out of someone of great stature. This marked this man out as a theologian of high rank. He wasn't even just an ordinary member of the Sanhedrin. This was the teacher. This man was well known for his ability to know the Scriptures. And yet, amazingly, he can't even grasp the simple thing that Jesus was telling him. He totally sees it, and only in the physical, he can't see it the spiritual. Isn't it amazing how many great high church men, people you would think automatically would know these things, knows often absolutely nothing about spiritual things. Half of them are just politicians and clerical gar garb. And here is another one here. And Jesus marveled at this. Are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen. And you do not receive our witness. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? And on he goes. Isn't it a shame today that there are many people standing in pulpits who have all kinds of degrees in theological colleges and they're not born again? They're not saved. They don't know Christ as their Savior. <laughs> and they hold high positions in the church. In fact, they could even become archbishops in the Church of England. Unbelievably. But there you go. Nothing much has changed, has it? And so, however, in spite of all of that, now they had come clean in their allegiance to Christ. Now this was a brave step to take. This would prove very, very costly for these two men. For a start, they're going to lose their job. And that was the thing they were scared of losing in the first place. They're going to lose their position within the religious hierarchy of the nation. These people right at the very top of their profession, could we say. This would perhaps be similar to maybe a professor in a university who's faced with the challenge of he believes in creation, but if he doesn't tone it down and he doesn't write about evolution instead, he's going to lose his job and his position. You think that's not happening? That's happening today. You can hardly get a paper published if you believe in creation in scientific circles today. And so to nail your color to the mass sometimes may cost you. It may cost you position. It may cost you friends. It may cost you something somewhere down the line. But it pays more than it costs. It pays more than it costs. You see... 
In John 19.38, in fact, why don't we just look at that? Just back a little bit. It says, After this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews. Ah, the fear of man again, isn't it? It brings a snare, doesn't it? Look at chapter 9 of John. See, these people held great power. And this is the story of the man that was born blind that Jesus healed. And of course, that started a whole big ruckus. Verse 16, Therefore some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath, because he healed on the Sabbath. Others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such things? And there was division among them. They said to the blind man again, What do you say about him because he opened your eyes? He said, He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him, that he had been blind and received a sight, until he called the parents of him who had received a sight. And they asked them, saying, Is this your son who says, you say, was born blind? Then how does he see? His parents answered them and said, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but by what means he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. He is of age. Ask him. He will speak for himself. Note this. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews, for the Jews agreed to rally that if anyone confessed that he was Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. Ah. So these two men had to take courage in hand because what they were about to do was going to cost them their high position and it was going to cost them being able to go to the synagogue. Now for any Jew, let alone member of the Sanhedrin, not to be allowed into the synagogue, you can imagine this was a big, big thing. And so they're going to have to take their stand and thank God they're standing now. Hebrews 13 says that let us go outside the camp bearing his reproach. And these two men were about to go outside their ecclesiastical camp and they're going to bear his reproach. They're going to be cut off from everything they've ever known. Think about it. Everything they've ever been taught. Everything they've ever studied for. All those years of training is going to be cut off. Their job is going to be gone. And they're going to be cast out of the synagogue. But they're going to use their position. We'll see this in a moment or two more. These were men of influence. And so they're going to use their position. They're going to use their power. You see, their position <clears throat> gave them considerable clout with the authorities. You have to understand that to go to Pilate directly meant that you were in a position of power and authority and status. I mean, the ordinary man on the street just did not walk into Pilate's quarters and ask him anything. This man was cruel and wicked. He was mean. He was vindictive. He hated the Jews anyway for a start. He knew that they had done to Jesus even though he had declared him innocent. 
And so for these men to go into the presence of Pilate were taking a risk. This could cost them their very lives. It was going to take considerable courage. And Rome actually had the final say with regard to the bodies of dead criminals. If you were a dead criminal, your body belonged to Rome to do what they wished with. Either let it rot on a cross or dump it or bury it in an unmanned grave, but you had no say. They had total power over you. And so these men knew that. And they knew that Jesus, remember, hung the cross for six hours. And at the end of the six hours, three o'clock in the afternoon, when he finally gave up his spirit and committed his spirit into the hands of the Father. From that moment he died until sundown at six o'clock, there was only a three-hour window of opportunity. This was something that had to be done immediately. Couldn't sit down and try to work all this out and find a better way. They had to do this immediately. They had to do it directly. Now they were on the spot. Now they had decided to come out of the closet, as it were, spiritually speaking. Now they were on the spot, and time was of the essence. And so they would go. In John chapter 19, Verse 31. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. It was a Passover Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. Breaking the legs hastened the death. Because once the legs was broken, they couldn't, lift themselves up to breathe and they would literally suffocate and so that would hasten the death and make it more quickly. Normally crucifixion was a long, painful, slow death that sometimes it could last for days. But this had to be done according to the Jews because the Sabbath was coming on. Ironically, incredibly. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who, and he who has seen has testified, and this testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled, that not one of his bones shall be broken. And then another scripture says, they shall look on him whom they had pierced. And after this, immediately after this, Joseph of Arimathea, being a disciple of the Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took the body of Jesus. And Nicodemus, let's read on a little bit. Nicodemus, who at first came to Jesus by night, also came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about a hundred pounds, and they took the body of Jesus. Now note this little bit here. You should underline this. Bound it in strips of linen. How many has heard of the Shroud of Turin? Everybody, basically. And today, it's in the news again, today, the Catholic Church is highlighting the Shroud 
of Turin, the so-called shroud that covered the body of Jesus. It's absolute nonsense. Why do they not read the scriptures? Jesus was never buried in a shroud. That wasn't the way they were buried, in strips of linen, bound, not buried in a shroud. So you can discount all of the nonsense about shrouds of Turin. We don't need that to prove that Jesus rose from the dead anyway. But it's not even scripturally right. Then they took the body of Jesus and bound it with strips of linen with the spices, as was the custom of the Jews, to bury. In Luke chapter 23... Verse 50. Now behold, there was a man named Joseph, a council member, a good and a just man. He had not consented to their decision indeed. He was from Arimathea, a city of the Jews, who himself was also waiting for the kingdom of God. So he's waiting for Messiah. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down, wrapped it in linen, laid it in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock, where no one had ever lain before. That day was the preparation and the Sabbath drew near. Did you notice that? He laid him in a tomb that was hewn out of the rock where no one had ever lain before. Ha. Huh. Somebody said that Jesus was born in the womb of a virgin and he was buried in a virgin tomb. And just as sure as he came out of the womb of a virgin, he came out of a virgin tomb, wherein never man had lain. Matthew 15. Just a couple of scriptures. Sorry, Mark 15, I beg your pardon. Verse 42, now when evening had come because it was the preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now note this, Pilate marveled that he was already dead. This was highly unusual. This was meant to be a long, drawn out, wicked, cruel death. And the longer it was drawn out, the better it was for the executioners. I mean, this is cruelty beyond belief. So he marveled that he was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. So when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. He was making absolutely sure that he was dead. Because he wasn't going to let a prisoner loose. Because his job would have been at stake. So he called the centurion. Is this right? He's only, been on, he's only been on the cross for a few hours. How could this be? But it was right because we know what happened, didn't we? Because Jesus had the power over his life. He had the power to give life. And he had the power to give life to the, back to the Father. He had the power to do this. He had the power to lay down his life. <laughs> no man took his life. He laid down his life. And this proves it. 
when the sacrifice was made, when the payment was paid, it is finished. It was enough. He didn't have to hang there for three or four days. The job was done. The price was paid. Into your, into my spirit, into my Father, I give my spirit into you. And he gave his spirit to the Father. He committed himself to the Father. He had the power to do this. And old Pilate was amazed. And so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, wrapped him in the linen. He laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock, rolled a stone against the door of the tomb, and so forth. And so, here's men that used their power and their position. Thank God for men and women who's in positions of influence and who use it for the kingdom of God. You and I will maybe never ever be in a position where we can influence people in high authority. But you can be sure that God will have somebody somewhere to do that. And it may take courage. Gone are the days when we had archbishops who would enter royalty and preach the gospel to them. It doesn't happen anymore. Gone are the days when we had archbishops who would go unto the prime minister and say, thus and thus saith the Lord. It doesn't happen anymore. Would to God that it did. But there are people who are in positions of influence that can influence those who have greater influence within society, within a nation. God has got his people everywhere, hasn't he? So we need to pray. We should pray for our local politicians. We have more born-again politicians in Northern Ireland than anywhere else in the UK, maybe anywhere else in the world. And they need all the prayer they can get because they don't get it easy. And they certainly don't get it easy in Westminster. I mean, they're a tiny, tiny minority in Westminster. So we really need to pray for them, the influence they do have that will be used for the glory of God. And then, finally, they use their prosperity. Now, Matthew records in Matthew 27 that Joseph of Arimathea was a rich man. And he had a rich man's tomb, it says, wherein never man lay. Now, it must have been a big tomb because the Scripture says it was a large stone that was rolled in front of it. And this would be hand-hewn out of limestone rock. And it probably was for his whole family. So it must have been quite a large tomb to have a large stone that was rolled in front of it. And only those of considerable wealth would have a grave such as this. And so he was a rich man. People in government tend to listen to rich men more than poor men. Don't you know that? If you're a rich man, often you'll get the ears of the politicians more than you're a poor man. Now, there are genuine good politicians who have their clinics up and down the country who if you go in with a, a debate about a neighbor's hedge or something, they'll take heed to it and they'll try to do something about it. But the farther those politicians oftentimes go up in status, 
Oftentimes, the little people are left behind. But when the rich man comes, when the big businessman comes, often they get their ear quicker. You know, there's a big round in Westminster a while back about how many times George Osborne, you know, who's the chancellor, how many meetings he had with the big wigs of the banks. <laughs> dozens and dozens and dozens of meetings because they got the ear of the chancellor because of their richness and their wealth and so forth. But here's these men using their uh, prosperity. In John 19.39, it shows that Nicodemus was also a rich man because he supplied myrrh and aloes about a hundred pounds weight. That is a lot. So here's a man of considerable means. And the two of them joined forces together. Both these men were men of substance and now they're going to use it to dignify and honor the body of the Lord Jesus. Isn't it great? The men of wealth and men of power use it for the kingdom of God. There is an extremely wealthy man who until very recently was a big supporter of the Conservative Party of Great Britain. He no longer supports them because they're veering away from what he believes. He's a Christian man. He's a born-again believer. They're veering away from all he believes, the scriptural rights. He's no longer supporting them. But I know a particular charity, and I know the man who's the head of it. And he called him up one day, and he said to him, he said about this charity he was running, he said, I've heard about it, I've found out about it. He says, would you come to my office and meet with me and talk to me. And so he went to his office, he met, he shared about the charity. He says, I'll be in touch. And he was in touch, because the next week he gave him a quarter of a million pounds, his charity. And hardly anybody knows about that. You know about it now, but you don't know who I'm talking about, so that's good. People of influence, people of power, people of prosperity, using it for the glory of God in the kingdom of God. It's wonderful. And thank God these two men did this. And so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus were men who were secret disciples. But in the end, thank God they came right out and they said, this is the least we can do for the master. It's going to cost us everything. It's going to cost us our jobs, our positions, all the rest of it, but we don't care. We're going to do it. It's the only thing. It's the very last thing we can possibly do. So therefore, we will do it. Thank God for that. But you know, there's a better way. And I'll close with this. There's a better way. And it's even more honorable. And it thrills the heart of Jesus. And it's more respectful and considerate. You remember Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus? You remember in John 12, how the house, how that she took that spiked nard, that beautiful, costly ointment, and she poured it out upon the master? Remember that? And you remember the unknown woman in the house of Simon the leper? who come in and she too took her alabaster box of spiked nard very costly and precious ointment and she poured it out upon Jesus two different anointings 
One two days before the Passover, one six days before the Passover. One at the home of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, one at the home of Simon the leper. Two different anointings. Both spike nard was used on both occasions. Both were condemned for doing it by man. But both were commended by Jesus for doing it. And you know what Jesus said? Let her alone, for she had done this against the day of my burial. Whether she knew in her heart of hearts something was going to happen, or whether she just felt, this is all I've got, and this is the best that I've got, and I'm going to give it to the Master while I've got the opportunity. And while Jesus was still alive, she poured it out upon him. They poured it out upon him while he was still alive. And Jesus said, this is against my burial. Can you imagine through all of that trial that would take place a couple of days later, all that vehement hatred against him. And he would stand there and the aroma of that precious spike nard would be on his coat. And he could smell it. And it would remind him that not everybody hates me. Not everybody's against me. There are people who loves me. You know, in his humanity, what would you feel if everybody was slapping you and pulling your beard and spitting at you and beating you, shouting at you, angry? Wouldn't you be glad that somebody loves you? Did it against the dead, my burial. They gave their best. They had no position. They had no status. They had no power. They had no influence. They were just ordinary five-eighths people. And really, they had no prosperity. Yes, they had this little box of very costly ointment, but that's all they had. They saved that all of their life. Maybe that was for their, for their own wedding. But they saved that. It was, it was their whole life savings. It was everything. But they gave it. And they gave it to the master when he needed it the most. Yes, it was wonderful what Joseph and Nicodemus did. Can't take that away. But perhaps it's even more wonderful what these two ladies did. And it's a memorial that's in the scriptures forever because of what they did. So if you're a secret disciple today, get out of the closet. <laughs> Nail your colors to the mast and say, I am a believer. And if you are a believer, give your best to Jesus and for Jesus right now while there's still breath in your body, while you can still move and walk. Night comes, Jesus said, when no man can work. So while you've still got the strength in you, give your best for Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. The old song says, Take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to Thee. Take my moments on my days, let them flow in secret and, and praise. Lord, we 
bless you today. We thank you that you have given us opportunity after opportunity after opportunity to serve you, to do everything we can while there's breath in our body to extend your kingdom. We bless you for this and we thank you for it. And Lord, as these days that we're moving into in the future, days that will cost us to be Christians, days when people will laugh at us and mock us, but Lord, you'll give us the grace and you'll give us the strength and the courage to be faithful and true. And so we thank you for your Holy Spirit that energizes us, that brings life into us, that helps us to stand and to walk as true believers in Christ. Forgive us for the times whenever we fail you, for the times, Lord, where we miss our opportunities and we do not take our stand. Forgive us, Lord, for those times. But help us, Lord, from this day to be strong in the Lord, never to be ashamed of the gospel, never to be ashamed of the name of Jesus, but to take up that name and to take up a cross and follow him. So we bless you and we give you thanks for this day. What a great resurrection day. What a wonderful thing to be in your house and to glorify your precious and lovely name. And we give you thanks for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.